The most recent chapter prior to this dealt with the sacraments in general, and there's a lot there that is assumed and built upon in this chapter dealing with baptism. Um, We're looking at this, the first of the two sacraments of the New Testament. And two weeks ago, when we were last together, we were looking at the mode of baptism in paragraph 3 that, uh, as we read here, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now, we won't go over all that we looked at two weeks ago, but I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to uh, go to the website, pull that up and listen to it. You can look at these scripture references. Hebrews chapter 9, basically what we see is that baptism had a rich Old Testament history. It wasn't just a completely new concept on the scene with John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, in in fact, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the very herald of Messiah, the one who's the forerunner. He goes before the Lord Jesus Christ to point him out as the fulfillment of all these promises that the Old Testament prophets have been indicating the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law with its ceremonial instructions about sacrifice and so forth. John the Baptist is on the scene then baptizing, and uh, we saw in Hebrews chapter 9 references to baptism in the Old Testament covenant. Uh, We have reference to various baptisms as prescribed under the law there in Hebrews 9. And then we saw an example in verses 19 through 22 that is specifically pointed to where Moses, at the foot of Mount Sinai, at the instruction of the Lord, as he is instituting this new chapter in the covenant of God's grace with his people, he has read the law, they have seen it, they're they're condemned by it. But he does what? By God's command. He takes the blood and the water and sprinkles the people and the book and everything there, indicating that even though there is this righteous standard of holiness, which they certainly have fallen short of, yet God is present with them not to destroy them for their sin, but to save them through a Redeemer. And so we see the indication there in the very act of Moses sprinkling the people with the blood, that's an indicator and and a prefigurement of the work of the Lord Jesus. His blood is the blood that cleanses us from sin. And so, again, there's a reference to baptism in the Old Testament economy. So then in Acts chapter 2, speaking to an Old Testament audience again here, Peter is concluding his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's preached powerfully by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's brought conviction. This is the city where Jesus was murdered. These are the people who participated in calling for his crucifixion, and they are pierced to the heart. They are, are great conviction. 3,000 are, are brought to conviction and repentance that day. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, as we said two weeks ago, that verse gives us two helpful points to consider as to why the assembly referenced it as a footnote. The first is, of course, even in speaking to this Old Testament audience, these are, these are the people who are the Old Testament covenant people of God there in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they have a background. They have an understanding of what this means when they're told, repent and be baptized. And it would have required um, much instruction and clear teaching on the apostles' part if this baptism was just radically and totally different from the nature of that, which was their context for their understanding of this. But the second thing, and I think the primary thing, is this relationship being established again in this instance between baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we've said for weeks now, of course, no man can call down the Holy Spirit. You can't draw that down. God from heaven pours out his Holy Spirit. He is the author of grace in our salvation. We're not able, no minister uh, is able to convey the grace of God. God conveys the grace of God. And so you can administer the outward elements of these sacraments and it even be to the greater judgment of a person receiving it when they have no faith in Christ, when it's not God's work of grace attending it. But we do see, though, the relationship being established that this gift of the Holy Spirit is being pictured and and connected to the baptism that God commanded through the Lord Jesus Christ there in the Great Commission, as we've seen. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is to be mirrored in this pouring out of water upon a person. And we see that connection again and again. As you read through, especially the book of Acts, you see the the relationship between uh, the baptism of people and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an intentional connection. And so if we go then to Acts 16, verse 33, here we have the case of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas, you remember, were um, arrested and uh, imprisoned. They were beaten. They're singing um, in the middle of the night. And there's a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. All the doors are opened and the bonds are unfastened. Um, in verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Very similar question to what we saw in Acts 2. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that, they, that he had believed in God. And so here we have another example of 
how the work of the Lord Jesus, this work of salvation, believing in the Lord Jesus, that's how you may be saved, uh, being pictured in the administration of baptism. And then in Mark chapter 7, in Mark chapter 7, here we have another one of these connections back to the Old Testament practice of baptism. Now, of course, it wasn't a sacrament in the Old Testament. Uh, there are aspects of it that uh, are altered as it's taken and, and used in the New Testament as a sacrament. But nonetheless, uh, the term is the same here. And we, we get an insight again into what the Old Testament concept of baptism was, what John the Baptist was uh, practicing, and what then became Christian baptism in the New Testament. In Mark 7, in verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So it's easy for us to lose the connection there. Why would they be speaking about this verse with reference to the mode of baptism? But in the Greek, this term that's translated washing here is baptism. That's the same word. And the assembly that wrote our confession of faith looked at this, at, again, to see how baptism in the Old Testament had functioned and how that term was used even in a New Testament context, which would inform how it was practiced in the New Testament. And notice there these various items that are baptized or washed. <clears throat> and to really have the full concept of this, we would go back to the book of Leviticus and these, these laws of cleansing in various scenarios. There were different laws for different materials. Certain things you would pass through fire. Other things you would wash in a certain way. And as you look at this, you realize that cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Uh, it's particularly that last one that even, even coming to Mark 7 without all of that Old Testament background, we would begin to realize, well, now that's probably not being, you know, pushed down in a swimming pool and submerged. No, that, that probably wouldn't be an appropriate way to cleanse a dining couch. Um, and that's what we see, again, when we go back to the Old Testament, the instructions about how that was to be done confirms the mode of sprinkling or pouring was employed. Okay, well, that, that finishes up, again, if you missed the first half of that paragraph, I encourage you to go back to the lesson from two weeks ago. But moving on to the fourth paragraph, with respect to baptism, we read not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So we look at these scripture references. First of all, the, the main point that hopefully is uncontested 
in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, we have, uh, again, another uh, statement, effectively, the Great Commission um, said differently as the Lord Jesus had appeared to his disciples many times over those 40 days. In verse 14 of Mark 16, we read, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. There in that verse, we we see the natural assumption that anyone who is professing a faith in Christ in response to hearing the gospel, it is assumed that they will obey the command of Christ. The very first that they come to in hearing the gospel would be that they be baptized in his name. It is, as it were, a part of their profession of faith that they would declare their need of cleansing, acknowledge that publicly, and pledge themselves uh, to God's covenant people, um, body and soul, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what baptism involves. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I think the second half of that verse does clarify uh, what the essential aspect of the first half is as our own confession goes on in the next paragraph which we'll come to the absolute essential element the thing that must be done as peter announced in both of those sermons that we read in acts 2 and then privately to the philippian jailer in response to what must we do to be saved you must believe in the lord jesus christ that's what you must do Uh, faith in christ alone is what Uh, It is the instrument through which our salvation is accomplished. But this matter of baptism is is that first act of obedience as a believer in Jesus. What should I do then, having professed my faith? Well, you need to submit to Christian baptism. So those who profess faith in Christ are certainly to be baptized. Let's look at Acts chapter 8 for another instance of this. Here we have Philip who by the direct agency of the Holy Spirit, is brought in the path of this Ethiopian eunuch who is um, struggling to understand what he is reading in the scriptures in the prophet Isaiah. And as we read in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? 
Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, if we keep reading in verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, if we, if we actually go back to the passage, and let's, let's do that. Let's turn back in Isaiah. We're going to look at chapter 52 and 53. And of course, the, the words that are quoted here in Acts 8 are in Isaiah 53. The eunuch had been reading for some time, we don't know how long, when the Holy Spirit sent Philip to explain this to him and to help him understand the gospel. But it's, it's not at all um, unnatural to assume that he, he may have been reading, and either way we can certainly see the same point, the end of Isaiah 52, which is likewise about this servant of the Lord who would come. In verse 13 of Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. You, you might say that Isaiah 52, 14 and 15 is an Old Testament anticipation of, a promise about, the Great Commission that Jesus declares when he's accomplished his work on this earth. He has lived his life. He's lived all of these verses that we continue on to read in Isaiah 53. And he has died for his sheep. And he has been raised from the dead. And he has come into the inheritance of the nations that was promised in Psalm 2. And, of course, that's what he declares to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus is declaring to his disciples there in the Great Commission. He's claiming that inheritance. The nations do belong to him. And what does he intend to do with this inheritance? What does he do with this position? You might say it this way. What does he see as the scope and the effect of his work that he's accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. What's going to happen because of that? Well, the Great Commission is his command to the church. You need to take this gospel. You need to claim these nations. They belong to me. You need to disciple them. Make them my disciples. You need to teach them to observe all I've commanded. You need to baptize them. So he, he is sending his church to the world to make disciples of the nations that belong to him. And so here we have in Isaiah 52 this reference. Uh, again, it, th there's some mystery to this that is cleared fully with the coming of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, how, how can the, the glorious, victorious king, the son of David be described here as so marred and brought to uh, such an end. 
this was difficult, but even in the Old Testament, this was the path of redemption that was laid forth. It was foretold that one would come to suffer, uh, that there might be victory. And so again, in verse 14, we read about the astonishment in, in response to this, this appearance of this one who is uh, so attacked, so um, beaten, uh, so hated, uh, that his appearance is marred. Uh, but notice there in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This is what will lead to his glorious victory over all of these enemies that even participated in attacking him and even killing him on the cross, the Lord Jesus, through that very act of rebellion, um, accomplishes his victory. And so he's bringing this redemption uh, to the world that these nations might be sprinkled. If you keep reading in 53 verse 1, Who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Of course, when you're reading Isaiah, it's hard to find where to stop reading, but we will end it there. So this is what the Ethiopian eunuch is, is reading and wondering about, is, is this talking about Isaiah? Or is he, is he speaking about someone else? This is where the Holy Spirit sends Philip and he shares the gospel with him. He explains that these things are speaking about Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus. He's going to be the one to accomplish 
all of this, not only the payment for the sins of his people, but then his glorious victory that follows, where he is dividing the spoil with the strong, and he is the good pleasure of the Lord is prospering in his hand. And in response to all of this, surely Philip does uh, bring him to at least the truth and understanding of this great commission that Jesus has just sent his disciples to fulfill. And here is the eunuch, having heard all of this, finding water in a place and saying, well, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He wants to be in that description of those nations being sprinkled or the description of the Great Commission uh, where the Lord Jesus sends his disciples to baptize and make disciples of all the nations of the world. He's an Ethiopian. He's he's a eunuch from that kingdom. Um, What interest does he have in this glorious kingdom? Well, he, he comes to understand that these promises are so great that they encompass even him. However far from uh, Jerusalem he, he might call his home, uh, he, he can now be a part of this kingdom. And so that is the reference in, uh, in our confession, uh, speaking to this obvious, hopefully obvious truth in the New Testament in the Scriptures, that those who profess faith in and obedience unto Christ are to be baptized. But then the majority of of the time is spent in the scriptures in this paragraph uh, pointing that also, as we read the second half of this paragraph, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now we'll have to compare some scriptures to see the full significance of one or the other as we put them side by side and interpret the scriptures by the scriptures as we're taught to. But let's begin in Genesis chapter 17. And the first thing that we see in God's gracious dealings with Abraham as he's establishing his covenant with him is that the covenant had significance, it had importance, it had implications not just for Abraham as an individual, but for Abraham's household. Now, this could be overstated. It could be taken too far, and the scriptures would correct this if we would read them. For example, you might think that in Abraham's case, uh, well, well, this just makes automatic and absolute as a rule that if you are a child in his home, then you are of the redeemed people of God. And that's, that's a wrong conclusion when we say that the covenant of God has implications and significance for his whole household. There is a claim put upon these people in a special way, even beyond that general claim of God as the creator over all he has made, that every person in that home belongs to God in a special way and has a special and added obligation to hear and respond with faith to the gospel. But it's not such an absolute rule that they automatically do. It requires faith. It requires that gift of God. We have examples. In Abraham's own household, we have Ishmael. In the household of his son Isaac, 
we have Esau in the household of Jacob. We have um, a Reuben, which we don't know for sure as to the repentance in his case, but nonetheless, we see a pattern in the scriptures that would, would teach us not to draw that extreme conclusion. But let's not let that take away from what this passage in Genesis 17 is teaching, that there is something very special. There is grace offered. There is the presence of God in a home where there is a believer in Jesus, and that presence of God is at work. The Spirit of the Lord is at work. Those means that we're called to take to the nations with the preaching of the gospel, with the reading of God's word and the ministry of it, uh, with a life of godliness to support that proclamation of the gospel, those things should be all present on a daily basis, on a continuous basis in the home of the believer. And if God blesses those things as he does in this great commission, in an outward ministry out into the world, uh, we shouldn't expect any less blessing in the covenant household. We see these are the very things God does use to lead people to faith in Christ. The godly witness, the, the ministry of God's word, the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit. And so we should have this expectation that just along with the claim, there is this atmosphere of grace in the covenant family. And we see that in Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall, be, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Now, it's not on a different basis. It's not representing anything different with respect to this member of the covenant household. They also need that same work of grace of God in their life. They must respond to it by faith to have an interest in eternal salvation. But notice that there is this expectation, this claim placed upon them at God's command. It's not based on how they did the first seven days. You know, we're going to really watch this kid. And, you know, based on how they're doing, we're going to circumcise him on the eighth day. No, of course not. No, it is a testament of God's grace and of his hand. Who is the one who saves? Well, God saves. And where does faith come from? It's the gift of God. So salvation is of the Lord, as the scriptures conclude many times. These children were to be claimed and marked and raised and taught to love God and taught to obey Him and taught to honor Him. Now, of course, that all has to be accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart to receive it, else they will grow up to reject this and fall away from God's people, reject the truth of the covenant. And that sadly does happen. But what God's promise gives us is that that should be exceptional, that the norm should be. And in fact, God even promises Abraham there is going to be a line preserved, an eternal covenant. You, you will have offspring that are uh, true to the covenant, that are walking in this, that embrace and, and have the spiritual correspondent to this physical circumcision. Moses even spoke about this in terms of circumcising the foreskins of your hearts, that it was never understood as being alone sufficient to just have this outward physical mark placed upon a person. But it was a claim it did have the accompanied promise of God's grace and his work in their number. And by God's command, Abraham applied the sign of the covenant. And we do see, we see uh, those who are faithful children of the covenant grow up to be and prove to be the, the true people of God. But we also have those who received this mark, such as Ishmael, who would reject the spiritual reality that it pictured of God doing a work in a person to cut away the old sinful nature and to bring new life. But in either case, at God's command, this sign was to be applied to the whole household. Now, when we, when we appreciate that about the Old Testament, then we can come to Galatians chapter 3, and this is, this is where we, we begin to see the full significance of that. We can even come to an agreement at times about Abraham in that case. It's very clear what God's command was in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? And there is, sadly, in some, that just a mindset that expects things to be radically different. Of course, there are differences. It's no longer an administration of anticipation and prophecy and prefigurement it's an administration of redemption has been accomplished that's a tremendous change but the same savior is 
is Savior for an Old Testament believer as in the New. And in Galatians 3, we have this this reflection upon Abraham and his experience in God's grace, especially looking to him as the father of those who believe, not just something to marvel at and and wonder at in an abstract arm's length way, but uh, this is part of our family heritage as a believer. And not only is that true in terms of we have a, a connection, a family connection, if you will, with Abraham, but there was something that was typical that was intended to be uh, instructive for us about how God dealt with Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham, even such as the one we just read about being a God to him and his children after him. Notice how Paul brings this and applies it to the believers uh, there at the church of Galatia. In verse 3, well, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now if we pause there. Jesus calls attention to this reality. Who are the true children of Abraham? He's dealing with the people that literally papered their pedigrees. They, They did the genealogy research, and they could show direct descendant, direct lineage back to Abraham. And Jesus would look at them and say, "Um, you are not children of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. Uh, You aren't doing the deeds of Abraham. That there's something much more than just a blood connection to be a true child. And so not only does that mean that not all of the physical descendants of Abraham are truly children of Abraham. Paul would say, um, not all of Israel is Israel. Not only does it limit the family tree of Abraham down to those who are the spiritual descendants who are walking in the footsteps of their father, but notice what verse 7 teaches us. Not only is it limiting those who are of the descendant and the lineage of Abraham to those who are believers, But this actually allows that all those who are believers, whether they are of the physical lineage of Abraham or not, are counted as children of Abraham. That's what verse 7 is teaching. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You remember what we just read in Genesis 17. 
God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, and he told him, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, not only does Paul in Galatians here understand that certainly Abraham multiplied, his family tree multiplied. You had the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Israelites. So there's a sense in which he is the father of a multitude of nations naturally. But Paul is finding in that promise much more that Abraham is called the father of a multitude, in fact, of all the nations uh, these promises are beginning to reach, as you see in verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "...and you shall all the nations be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What's the most important thing about Abraham? He was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to come. And he was a lover of God, and he walked in God's covenant. And that common thread, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then God places you in this group, in the family of Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how was Abraham blessed? What was he promised? Well, we read in Genesis 17, we could read other promises. But we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in who? In the Lord Jesus And so how did Abraham have an interest in those promises? By faith in the Christ to come. And how can we have an interest, or what do we have an interest in by faith in Christ? All of these promises. We can be blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide, by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so Paul, in just a few verses, summarizes the whole force and teaching of not only the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant in the law. What was the Mosaic Covenant teaching us? That there is blessing and life only in obedience to God, in righteousness and conformity with His righteous standard. And how can you have that? Well, you can't blend these two options. You either will rely upon your own obedience or you will look to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you're looking to yourself, you're a sinner. You're a lawbreaker. And therefore, you're under the curse and judgment of God. And you can't be justified 
by the law because of your sin. But the Old Testament doesn't leave God's people in despair in that, but points them to a life of obedience and a righteousness outside of themselves in the promises that we find again and again through the Old Testament. The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. That's what Jeremiah prophesied. And the righteous shall live by faith. That is a quote from the Old Testament. For the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he has confirmed the Mosaic law in what it said, that curse and judgment comes upon sin. That's an inescapable truth in God's world. And Jesus resolves that for us by taking the curse and the judgment upon himself there upon the, upon the cross. And there is only blessing and the smile of God upon perfect righteousness. And Jesus conveys that to us. His life of perfect righteousness conveyed to us by faith. That's how we can be counted righteous as Abraham was. And in verse 14, notice again, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, sadly, we are to the end of our time, and that's unfortunate because we've got a lot of Scripture references. If you have your handout, you can see those. Many more passages to look at uh, to see this made abundantly clear and confirmed in the Word of God. But we will, with God's blessing, look at that next week in our time together. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for your amazing grace, which you have shown to your people for so many centuries. We thank you for the grace of the covenant you made with Abraham in passing yourself alone between the parts, confirming and promising to bring about the fulfillment of the conditions of the covenant yourself. We thank you for giving Abraham this command and promise that you would be a God to him and his children after him. And Lord, we pray for ourselves and our households, our children. We pray that you would bless by the work of your spirit the lives, uh, that they would be godly examples of walking with you. We pray that Deuteronomy 6 and the instructions we, we find there to be using God's word to explain life and to teach our children about everything as we sit in the home, as we walk by the way, as we stand up, as we, as we do whatever we do, that it would be bound on our foreheads, um, controlling what we think and how we perceive reality, that it would be uh, tied to our hands, that it would control uh, all that we do. Lord, we pray that as we share the gospel in our homes, as we exemplify it with our lives, as we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and bless, we pray that these covenant promises would be fulfilled in the gift of faith being given to each of these covenant children in our homes. And Lord, for those who have grown and left the home, Father, we thank you that your arm is long and your grace is strong. 
And we pray for those who have wandered from you. We pray that you would yet fulfill the promises that you have given to Abraham and to us in Jesus Christ. We pray for adult children who have wandered from you. And we ask that you would reclaim them, even today. Come by your Holy Spirit and do a great work of revival in their hearts. Lord, we thank you that you alone are our Savior, that our faith in you alone is how we have an interest in that salvation. And we pray that as we study your word, we might be kept from the foolishness of obscuring the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to be good students of your word, and not just for some abstract knowledge, but for a transformed life of obedience and devotion to you, full of the fruit of your Holy Spirit. We pray for his presence even now as we gather with the rest of your people who are able to be here today. We pray that we would be full of joyful praise and have hearts eager and hungry for your word that we might there see and hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ um, speaking to us and, and leading us into life and salvation. We pray this in his name.